Pastor Mark came to us and he said, Jeff, you get one week, Tyler, you get one week, and you can preach on anything that you want. And so Jeff had the idea, why don't we do a mini-series on the identity of Jesus? And so we started last week in John 6 with the I am statements of Jesus. Jesus gave seven of them, and it was his attempt to tell you and his, his immediate audience, here's who I am, here's what I want to do, so that you can begin to trust me. And so the first statement was, I am the bread of life, and we'll jump into the second here in a moment, but before we do, I want to reflect on some history. In the years preceding World War II, Hitler was amassing an enormous amount of power, seemingly unchecked. He was both public and invisible at the same time. And I've often asked myself, as many others did throughout history, how did he do it? How did he get so pervasive and connected throughout Germany and the world with nobody looking at his plan saying, we should stop this guy? One individual, Dr. Jeremiah Johnston, wrote a book called Unimaginable, and it was chronicling the evil men and the righteous men, the evil women and the righteous women throughout Germany and Europe leading up to World War II and also throughout the world, looking at what happens when Christianity enters a region and also when it leaves. And he made this statement about Hitler. He said, one of the reasons I think that he was so successful is because, simply put, he lied about who he was. To his sympathizers, he said, my mission is to enlarge Germany, perfect Germany, purge it of the undesirables, and make sure we're strong again. But to everybody else, he knew that he couldn't go to Germany and publicly say, I want to exterminate an entire group of people. And so to the rest of Germany, which was pervasively influenced by the church, he said, I want to enlarge you. I want to expand the church, which is why Jews to this day will often say that Hitler was a Christian, because they, they bought the lie. He didn't care about Jesus. He didn't care about the church. In fact, in his own private journals, he mentioned that he hated the church. It was a sickness that he wanted to exterminate. But it gives you this lesson, you and I. If we don't know who we follow, if we're unsure of who our leader is, we run the risk of getting manipulated. We run the risk of enormous pain and loss, which is why we date it's why we look at someone and say, I like you, but we need to make sure that we're not going to hurt each other. That's what the dating season is. Can I trust you with my life? It's why we vote. It's why we have debates, because we look at our leaders and we want to say, I need to know who you are before I say, with my vote, I trust you. So it's the same in marriage. It's the same in friendships. It's the same with governance. And it is the same with God, that we need to know if we can trust this person. See, if I don't know who he is, I'm never going to trust him. If I don't trust him, I'm never going to follow him. And if I don't follow him, I'm never going to be led into difficult situations and find myself on the other side saying, I'm okay. And so we need to ask the question this morning, as Jeff began us last week, who is Jesus and can I trust him? If you're here and you're a believer, you're asking, can I be led by this man? Can I be led by this God? What does it look like to live in this kingdom of light? And if you're here and you're a non-Christian, you came on a phenomenal week because I'm here to help you ask and answer the question, who is God? Who is Jesus? And can I trust them with my life? Now, the reason that no one came up and read the scriptures is because there was simply one verse. So I'll read it to you now. This is out of John 8. John 8, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, before we jump into the text, I think it's important that you understand the context of this verse, because it makes it that much more beautiful. 
You see, when the Jews were brought out of Egypt and they started establishing themselves as a nation, God said, I need to teach you how to party because you're bad at it. And so he commanded multiple celebrations. This is our God. He says, I love dancing. I love good food. I love good company. So let me teach you how to do this. And your celebrations will mark important events in your history. Most notably, he said, the, first, the biggest celebration you will have every year. And you will keep this as long as you exist. They still celebrate it to this day. Is the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. And he says, this will mark the 40 years in the desert. And so every single year to this day, Jews will leave their homes, homes with good walls, homes with roofs, and they will camp for seven days. And they will set up tents or makeshift structures like the one you see on the screen. Now, obviously in ancient Israel, they didn't have lights. This is a modern one. They set up tarps and they set up branches and they just sit and they tell stories and they remember what God did for 40 years in the desert. Another thing that they do to draw their minds to what God did, that he led them in a pillar of fire. He spoke to Moses with the burning bush. He was the God that led with light and in light is they light a bunch of fires. These are my kinds of people. Now they go into the courtyard. This is an artist rendition of the temple and they set up three massive pillars. And on the top of the pillars, they would have these huge fire pits and they would fill them with oil and with logs of wood and set them ablaze every night for seven straight days. And at the end of the celebration, they would snuff the fire out, the lights would go dim, and it's at that moment that Jesus walks up the temple steps in John chapter eight, and with all the lights gone, but thousands of Jews in attendance, he says to all of them, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you will not walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. And the religious Jews, the Pharisees, lose their minds. So before we jump into their response, we need to, again, what's our question? Who are you, Jesus? And based on what you said, can I trust you with my life? So I think this light claim, Jesus is the light of the world, I think that does two things for you. Number one, it establishes the trust relationship you need to move forward with God. And secondly, it, prevent, it presents in front of you a choice, a choice that you need to make, a choice I need to make. And we'll walk through that here in a moment. But here's what the light claim does. Number one, light establishes trust. And it does this by validating an identity of Jesus in prophecy. You see, if this was just a metaphor, if Jesus got on the steps and said, I'm kind of like a light bulb. Like I, I glow, I'm shiny, I reveal things. If that's all it was, there is no reason why the Jews got so angry. If you read verse 12, it says, Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. Verse 13, the Pharisees confront him just up and they're like, how dare you testify about yourself? Why'd they get so angry? Because they might know something that you might not. They had the Old Testament memorized and they realize this is not a metaphor. Jesus wasn't just giving a metaphor. He was giving an identity statement. It would be akin to me crossing the street, walking a few blocks, going to the Capitol, opening the door and declaring myself governor of Oregon. Everyone in the building would be like, clearly, sir, you are not. For we have the governor's portrait on the wall. And that's a woman. You're not the governor. Jesus walks up on the step and he says, I'm the, I'm the light of the world. And they say, no, you're not. So clearly, there's more to this than just a metaphor. What Jesus just did was he spoke something to them 
that you hear is light of the world, but here's what they heard. I am the self-existent one. I am God, also the Messiah you've been waiting for. Why did they hear this? Because they knew prophecy. You'll see this on the screen, Isaiah 49, 6. The Lord says, I will make you, my servant, a light for the Gentiles, my salvation, so that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Here's who the Jews were waiting for. There would be a Messiah figure. They wouldn't know exactly who he was, but he would be handsome. He would be powerful, well-spoken. He'd be a military leader. And he would go to the Jews and say, your time of trouble is over. I will decimate the Roman government, keep you safe, maybe save a couple Gentiles, maybe. That's who they were waiting for. And his message would be one of life. I come so that you are saved. And I bring a global salvation message. Jesus just said that. He said, I'm the light of the world. My message is one of salvation and life, and it's global. So you need to ask, did that happen? Or was Jesus just lying? Does the gospel indeed go from Jesus to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and to all the nations of the world? Clearly it does, because you are sitting here. You are the fulfillment of this prophecy, which is wonderful, You sit in a church in Salem, Oregon, in North America, because this came true. Jesus presents the gospel, this message of salvation, and it does indeed go to the Jews. And then it shoots over to the Gentiles, meaning non-Jews, everyone else. Paul said, the reason God saved me, this is Romans 13, 11, he saved me so that I would go preach this message to the Gentiles. And then the gospel went up into Europe. And then the gospel went over into Asia and into Russia. And then the gospel jumped the ocean and shot over to North, Central, and South America, giving rise to you. And then the gospel circumnavigated the globe. And in your lifetime is now popping up revivals in all places, Iran, which is where the church is growing fastest at this moment. Making Christianity the only religion on earth that is larger outside its point of origin. Jesus not only connected himself to prophecy, he fulfilled it. And he said, yes, this gospel will go from me to the Jews, to the Gentiles, to everyone. Here was another prophecy that they would have had in mind. Isaiah 51, 4. Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me. My justice will become a light to the nations. It wasn't just I've come to save you. I've come to determine how you should live I will bring about a moral code. I will bring about justice, a thing that you and I in first world America don't really understand. We don't appreciate it. Because if you call the cops, they show up. If someone hurts you, you sue them and they go to jail. It's not like that around the rest of the world. The rest of the world craves the justice that you and I take advantage of because we were birthed in Judeo-Christian values. Why was that so? Because those values had spread to the world. Take, for example, the Roman world Jesus grew up in. One of the things that was unbelievably common, completely socially accepted, was infanticide. If you had a baby and you didn't want it, it was not unheard of for a mom to birth her child and literally physically throw it outside. It wasn't unheard of to see babies writhing in the dirt. It is Roman law, ancient Roman law. Look this up. Look it up right now in the 12 tables. It's, that was the written Roman law. Dads, this one's for you. Your job as a dad, if, you bir- if your wife birthed a child with a deformity, 
It was your legal obligation to kill your baby. You needed to get rid of it because the Romans have no use for broken humans. But then Jesus comes on the scene and women are elevated. Women were listened to. Women were the first ones to bring about the gospel and Jesus made it that way. And children were valued. They were called in scripture a gift. But if you look at what the law said, children were an annoyance. And you only kept them if you really, really, really wanted them. Inside 250 years from the moment the gospel makes its first eruption on the scene, in 250 years, infanticide was unheard of by pagans. God's moral code went out from him to his people and then to everyone. Why do you need to know this? Because friends, whenever you pick a best friend, you've picked that person based on years of trust. You can go hang out with anyone, but your best friend is the one that knows where you've messed up. They've forgiven you. They look past it and they're like, we're gonna stay together. Your life is safe with me. It's how you picked a spouse. You picked the person, not that you overwhelmingly romantically loved the most. You said, I'm safe with you. We do this with humans and we need to do it with God. And God knows this. So he said, look at me. I am completely exposed in my story. Jesus said, look 700 years in the past, they were prophesying about me. And then in the way that he lived his life, the way that he spoke, the way that he acted, he said, I haven't changed. You already knew I was gonna do this. I told you 700 years ago. And then you sit in a church 2,000 years ago, the fruit of this man's ministry. What does that tell you? He has not lied to you for 3,000 years. He won't begin to right now. You can trust this man. You can trust this man who said that he was God. So if I can trust him, could it be possible that I could live life with this man, with this God? What, what does it look like to live in the kingdom that he started preaching about? Well, here's the second thing that the light claim does. Yes, it validates trust and you need that to move forward. But the other thing that the light claim does is it gives you a choice. You see, Jesus said, I'm the light of the world, but then he didn't leave it there because our God loves tension and he loves relational, just messing with people. So he says this, anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You're like, how is that rude? I'll tell you exactly why. Jesus number one preaching topic. Number one, second to nothing was the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light as he describes it in the gospel of John. So what did he just do? He said, if you follow me, you're going to be in the light. If you reject me, which is your choice, you're in the kingdom of darkness, which by the way, friends, is the kingdom you and I were born into by default. And it has nothing to do with where you were physically born. It's in here. Jesus says, you're born against me, but I've given you an invitation and I'm going to create a kingdom. It will be stunning, but there's going to be a way that you need to live in this kingdom. You don't get to come into my castle and tell me what to do as we would never do with any king. He says, if you walk into this place, you have the invitation, the door's open, but you will live according to my principles. So here are the choices that are before you. You, but before, before we give you the choices, the thing that you might be wrestling with right now is our culture despises exclusive language. We hate it. We love inclusive language. We love it when everything is fair. We love when everyone's included. We love equal outcomes. We love perceived fairness. Here's the thing though. Separation is actually sometimes incredibly kind, if not loving. 
Have you ever had a child in a class and you discover someone else in the class has lice? You love separation at that point. You're like, get that kid home. I don't want lice in my house. I don't want it on my child. Have you ever met a murderer or a rapist? See, we're fine with separation then. Put that person in a building, lock the door, and we'll stay out here. We are fine with separation when we agree. We're not fine with separation when God's the one demanding it. And God says, I will separate you. And I'm doing it because I love you. There will be a kingdom of light. You can submit to that if you want. Or there will be a kingdom of darkness. And here, here he goes about describing this. Here's the, the, the questions before you. First one, do you want to live a life that is known or unknown? This is what's presented to you. This is his description of the kingdom. He doesn't describe it in the verse we read, but John describes it a few chapters earlier. This is John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the verdict of God. Light has come into the world, but people, you and me, have loved darkness instead of light because our deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light willingly so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. What is this kingdom like? As he describes it to you, here's what you need to understand about the way that God operates. He will expose it all. All of your mistakes, all of our sin, all of our shortcomings, God says, light on it. We're not hiding anymore. Now, to, when you think about that, when you think about being exposed for all the things that you've done, all of who you are, you have one of two responses. Number one, you sit in the light. You're like, I'm exposed, but I need it. I need to be exposed before God and humans. And I will then work on repentance and forgiveness. And there's maturity and there's growth. That's option one. Option two is you book it and you hide. Those are the only two options when a light is shined on you. I had a good buddy that was talking to me and he had sinned, he'd messed up. And he was recounting, he, he was in, in a sense repenting to me, though he didn't need to, he was just describing the story. And in his mistake, in his sin, he'd hit it really, really well. Nobody knew. Siblings didn't know. Boss didn't know. Parents didn't know. But then it was discovered. It came out and he was processing with me the emotions that he felt in that moment of getting caught. He goes, for a second, for one second, I was horrified because I, I thought, what's my dad going to think? What's my mom going to think? What are my siblings going to think? What's my boss going to think? But he goes, what overwhelmingly washed over me was a beautiful sense of gladness. He goes, I couldn't explain it, but it was like my soul was excited to get caught. He goes, I almost involuntarily, it's like, like the Holy Spirit in me was like, thank God you got me. You caught me. And as he was describing this, what was really funny to me, and I started to smile, which was odd. He's pouring his heart out, and I'm just almost giggling in my seat because I'm like, do you realize who you sound like? This is almost word for word King David. When David slept with Bathsheba, not his wife, and then murdered her husband, he hid that really well. Nobody knew. And then the prophet Nathan, under the inspiration of God, comes and exposes all of his horrible behavior and when David recounts it in the Psalms, he says, it was as if the hand of God was on me. He goes, I couldn't think, I couldn't eat, I couldn't focus, I couldn't govern. My friend was saying the same thing. He goes, it, it was like I was sick, but I knew I wasn't. 
It was like I couldn't stand up straight, though I knew I was physically fine. He, like David said, my sin was ever before me. It was sitting in front of my face. In the same way it might be for you. You hit it. Your wife doesn't know. Your husband has no idea. Your children don't know. They think incredibly well of you. And you are terrified that the second you reveal who you really are, you're going to lose them all. But friends, that's a lie. Now, might there be consequences? Sure. We need to deal with those. Jesus didn't go to the cross for no reason. But he said, in my kingdom, in this place, you are safe. You will reveal who you are. I'll expose it whether you want to or not. There are moments where God lovingly exposes us even when we're the ones hiding and running. But he says, you need to be known by your spouse. You need to be known by your boss. You need to be known by your kids. And we, yes, it will be messy. Yes, Thanksgiving is gonna be awkward. Yes, Christmas will be odd and maybe painful, but you will all work on forgiveness together and you will work on repentance together. And maybe for the first time in your life, your faith will mean something. He says, in this kingdom, I will expose it all. Do you wanna live known or unknown? Because here's the thing, friends, when we look at friendships to those that we're hiding from, that's not real friendship. They know a false view of you. You've got a mask on and they think the mask looks pretty good, but they don't know what's underneath because you won't tell them. Do we want real friendship? Do we want real romance with our spouse? Do we want real connection with our boss? Do we want companies built on trust or do we want to spend the rest of our lives lying and hiding? You have the choice. Do you want to live known or unknown? That's what the kingdom of light offers you. Here's the second choice you have. Do you want to live clear or confused? Now, as I said before, when Jesus says, if you walk with me, it'll be light. If you don't, it's darkness. That's something you need to admit. You got to accept the reality. When you read John chapter 12, verse 35, he says these profound words, whoever walks in darkness doesn't know where they're going. Let that one sink in. I know that that was deep. See, that is both a physical and a spiritual reality. If it is dark, you don't know where you're going. Now, if you're serious with yourself, no one here would say, I love driving in the dark with no headlights, no streetlights, and no signs. I get a kick out of it. Nobody would, because you run a serious risk of hurting yourself, someone else, and probably not getting to where you're going. We love headlights. We love lamps, streetlights, signs, because it helps us know where we're going. We as parents, we love our kids. We love giving guidance. I don't know that I've ever met a parent that goes, I really want my kid to fail. I can't wait for him to crash and burn. I'm stoked for it. We look at our kids and we're like, I don't want you to make the mistakes I did. So here's the guardrails. Here's what keeps you safe. Hey, there's danger up there. I'm gonna warn you for it. So you veer to the left or the right. I wanna make sure you win. That's what a good dad does. That's what a great mom does. And if we can do that as human beings, how much more do you think God says, you're my son, you're my daughter, and I want you to win? See, God loves guidance. God loves order. He loves structure. In Proverbs 3, he says this, acknowledge me, and I will make your path straight. Now, now please, like, let that one sink in. I could quit preaching, and you could wrestle with that the rest of the day. Acknowledge me. Sit with me, pray with me, read my word, and I'll make your path straight. But we run around, we're like, God's distant, God's quiet, and it's like, okay, but have you sat with him? Have you waited with him? Or did you pray one time, he didn't give you an answer, and you're like, God doesn't listen. 
No, God says of his word, and he doesn't lie, acknowledge me, and I will make your path straight. The psalmist says this in 119, your word, God, is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. You're the street light, God. Your word is my lamp. It teaches me where to go. So how can you and I live in this kingdom practically? What does this look like? Well, he tells you. He says, if you want to walk in the light, stay close. Walk with me. Stay close to me. I was camping uh, a week or so ago, and we do it with a bunch of friends. We got a bunch of campsites, and at the end of every day, we put our kids to bed in their respective tents, and all of us adults, we pick one campsite, and we light a big fire, and we just eat incredible s'mores and tell stories, and we laugh for hours. And at the end of the night, when the fire dies down, we all get ready, we get up, and we go to our respective campsites, led by the light of flashlights and lamps, because it is pitch black dark. It's over on the coast, and you're surrounded by huge trees, and surrounding them is huge dunes. The sun's gone down. It's been gone for hours. You can't see three feet in front of your face. And so every night, I would get up, and I would go with my wife, and we'd walk back together. But one night, I decided I wanted to lose some husband points. So I just got up, and I started walking, and she didn't get up. So I left her, and I hear her sweet voice saying, um, hun, do you want to come get me? Because I can't make it to you. Now, she, I, could, I could hear her. I knew she was close. But in my head, I was like, babe, just walk forward. But then I turned with my light, and I realized I was calling her to walk forward into four camping chairs, a bunch of logs for the fire, and some children's toys. It was the most epic camping booby trap ever. <laughs> and I just called her into that. Here, here's what I mean. Here's what this verse means. It is not enough for Audrey to know that I have the light. She had to walk with me. I had to walk with her. It's not enough for you to know that God is the light. It's not enough. Anyone can say that Jesus was smart or wise or good or powerful. It's not enough. It is not enough for you to go to church. I love what I do. I love you. I can preach to you. I can encourage you. But Sunday's not enough. You cannot walk into that world and parent your children, run your business, reach your neighbors with one day of devotion a week. You can't. He says, I'm the light, walk with me. Stay close. That might mean for you that you need to turn your schedule around because your common routine is to stay up well into the night, watching movies, playing video games, looking at something on your computer or your phone. I'm not judging you, I've done it too. But then you stay up super late. You get up early in the morning because you got stuff to do but you're dead dog tired, you don't read the word, you don't pray, and then you sit there midday in your own anxiety thinking, man, God, my life's a mess, I wonder what's wrong. And God's like, I know exactly what it is. Do you wanna listen? Because I'm ready to tell you. I'm ready to reveal new paths and new jobs and new friendships. I'm ready to reveal hardships but I'm not going to reveal solutions to your problems until you're willing to sit with me. We're running around in the dark campsite of our life, running into chairs and other people and firewood and fire pits, wondering like, what's wrong? Turn the light on, friends. And so here's the choice. Do you want to live a clear life or do you want to consist in your confusion? God says, I'm willing to take you whenever you're ready. And here's the final question, choice that you need to make. Do you want to receive life or do you want to accept death? The Bible's pretty clear, guys. 
Some things are confusing. I will admit this. This one's not confusing. He says, for all have sinned, all of you, myself included, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and that sin is deserving of death. And so if that's already the end, then why, why should we care about the light? Why should we care about this kingdom? Why should we make the change and enter into this space? Because it is the only space, the only space where you are safe. It's the only place that being exposed is okay. I liken this to marriage because if you were naked in public, you're not safe. That's exposure. But if you're naked in marriage, you're safe. That's fine. God says, I will expose you, but I'm the only place that's safe. I'm the only place that I can teach you repentance and forgiveness. It says this in 1 John 1, 7. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Yes, coming into this kingdom will demand that you change. Coming into this kingdom will mean that you need to have some awkward conversations. It will mean you will need to admit things that you've hidden for decades. But God says, if you trust me, I will teach your family repentance and forgiveness. I will teach you emotional grit and stability. I will heal your family. And even if there are broken relationships that don't seem to heal, you and me are right. And that's really the only thing that matters. I listen, one of my favorite people, favorite podcasts is by Frank Turek. He's an apologist that travels the world, most notably American colleges. And he just asks and answers difficult questions about faith. And every single time he does a Q&A at the end of his sessions, and there are students that come up and they say, I'm an atheist, I'm, I'm a man or a woman of logic. And he says, that's fine. I love logic. My God made it. So let's have a discussion if you like logic so much. Let me ask you a question before we begin. If Christianity is true, will you become a Christian? And almost invariably, they always say, nope. And he's like, okay, but you just told me you're a man or a woman of logic, and that's not a logical response at all. If Christianity is true, would you become a Christian? And they say no. And he says, well, what do you want then? They say, we want more evidence. He goes, no, you don't. You don't want more evidence because it's not a head problem. I've given, you an, I've given you evidence for an hour and a half. Your problem is right here. You don't want Christianity to be true. You don't want it to be true because if it is, it means you're going to need to change. You're going to need to stop sleeping with your boyfriend. You're going to need to stop dishonoring your parents. You're going to need to stop misusing your money. You're going to need to stop lying to your spouse. You will need to change, but I promise you, you're going to be okay. You need to trust me. See, for those of you that are Christians in this audience, I just want to say to you, thank you. I know the church sometimes gets a bad rap, but I've grown up in it. And I love you. I've messed up. I have insulted people in this church. I have demeaned people in this church. I've made stupid decisions that have insulted people in this church. And you still love me. And you still give me permission to lead you. And I'm grateful for that because I have learned repentance and forgiveness and emotional grit. And you've helped me do that. To the non-Christians, thank you so much for coming. But the question is in front of you. Do you want this family do you want real friendship? Do you want to live known? Do you want clear paths that God gives you? Do you want to live in the light or do you want to live and remain in darkness? The invitation is to you. Please come see me. I will be right here. I'm not moving. 
I would love to introduce you to the God that I serve. Today's the day. Just start praying right now. Like, Lord, would you reveal yourself to me? Open my eyes. Bring me new friends. Bring me a new family. I'm ready to serve you and not myself anymore. And like my friend, would we all say it is far better to be known even in our mistakes and be forgiven than it is to hide the rest of our lives. See, in this kingdom, there is life. To reject this kingdom is death. Physical, spiritual, relational. You gotta make a choice. Who do you wanna serve? Let me pray for you.